what I'm going to try and cover in this, uh, in this presentation is, first of all, to give you a sort of background to the project, um, think about the way that I designed it and also some of the theoretical underpinnings. Um, I'm going to mainly concentrate on um, some very early findings. Um, what has been quite remarkable about this project really is the sort of um, the ease in which uh, I've come up with findings um, simply because the issues have been so clearly articulated and so obviously common across um, so many participants um, that while I'll be developing some kind of more detailed and nuanced findings um, I, you know, I've actually found it quite easy to come up with um, some initial sh thoughts with, to share with you today. So you have to tell me um, how you how you're thinking about what I'm telling you. Um, and I'm going. I've, I've come up with again some early recommendations. Um, and uh, interestingly, um, had a meeting with some of the academic associations who are feeding into this project this morning. And quite a few of my recommendations resonate with the discussions we've had. So it's a good a good sign. I have some ongoing questions which I'm going to share with you as well. Um, and then as I said um, earlier, um, some of the representatives of academic associations are going to share a sort of initial response to uh, what, I, what I'm talking about um, at the end of my presentation. So to give you a bit of a sense of the project uh, background, the sort of areas of research um, that feeding into this, this project. Um, Conferences and academic mobility are sort of where I'm coming from um, in this in this project. I was doing my doctoral work before on uh, the sort of embodied knowledge production of um, feminist and gender knowledge at women's studies conferences. Um, and um, and as I was doing that, I was realizing how um, neglected conferences are as spaces, um, as research sites almost. Um, and um, and it's, it was actually through that sort of interest in, in conferences as academic spaces that I came to this particular project. Um, also um, through thinking about time in relation to academia and uh, the fact that um, time is often constructed um, in certainly feminist accounts of higher education as well as critical accounts of higher education as speeding up. Um, academics lack time, they don't have enough time, there's not enough time in the day, uh, they're having to multitask. All of these discourses became quite interesting to me um, as questions of uh, what is actually happening to time in academia. Is it speeding up or is it our relationship to time that's changing or, or what? So um, in a way I've sort of come, come into this, uh, this in interest in caring responsibilities and conference in relation to academic mobility, conferences as spaces of knowledge production and um, spaces where that speeding up of academic time is sort of particularly um, uh, obvious or, or intense. Um, but what, uh, what immediately became obvious to me as I was doing um, my other research was the extent to which um, caring responsibilities um, almost sort of forced themselves onto the research agenda through any research on conferences and academic spaces of that kind, um, simply because um, actually almost everyone that was part of my study uh, was dealing with some caring responsibilities or other that impacted on their experience of the conference, um, to the extent of them being able to attend all of it or not, or to the extent of their actual um, attention or um, quality of experience being um, kind of affected in some way. Um, and as I began to sort of uh, 
come more into um, thinking about these things. Sorry, the uh, formatting's gone a bit funny. Um, all of these different uh, voices came, came towards me, sort of asserting the importance of caring responsibilities in conference research, whether from academic literature that in passing refers to conferences, um, literature around gender and higher education, for example. Um, as I myself become more embedded in the institutional structures of Warwick, uh, it came clear to me. Friends and colleagues talking to me about their challenges of attending conferences. Um, I'm actually also doing some research on fictional uh, representations of conferences as cultural artefacts um, at the moment with a colleague Pauline Reynolds. Um, and even in all of these fictional accounts, caring responsibilities become really clear, um, not to mention my own uh, PhD research participants. So um, it, it sort of occurred to me that um, this is quite an urgent issue. Um, but uh, perhaps because my background isn't necessarily in um, care research, I hadn't really anticipated um, the sort of strength of response that I would get from this uh, research project. Um, it, was, it was very much a feminist, a feminist research project for me, something that uh, reflected my, my principles um, and um, uh, yeah, the sort of ongoing focus of my work. But perhaps because I don't necessarily have uh, such a background in care studies per se, uh, maybe I sort of underestimated how um, difficult and urgent this question is. Although, as Marie-Pierre has said, maybe there's not actually that much research in this area anyway. Um, but that's sort of where where the, the focus came from and the three areas of research that I'm contributing to with the project. Um, particularly, um, as Marie-Pierre has already um, sort of shown us academia um, and in relation to caring responsibilities, I should sort of dwell briefly on the importance of conferences. Um, and um, there is really a surprising lack of research on academic conferences. Um, Nicholas Rowe, who's a doctoral student working at the University of Lapland, um, is trying to work out the value of conferences and he's come up with several different figures all of which are sort of billion dollar it's a massive uh, global industry um, that somehow because it's quite fragmented um, split between in sort of smaller you know associations universities small academic research groups it's maybe not received the sort of research attention that it might have done um, secondly, um, within the sort of research area of academic mobility, um, there's an emphasis on longer periods of time spent away, a year abroad, um, moving abroad for a new job, going away to do a whole degree. There's a lot less of an emphasis, or at least within academic mobility studies, while I think mobility studies as a field has recognised the frenetic mobility of, uh, or mobility expectations of today's society, uh, academic mobility studies has not focused so much on um, the, the short-term trip uh, and the effect of it on academics' uh, lives. So um, there's a sort of need to maybe fill that gap slightly. Um, but there's particularly um, an issue around the representations of conferences um, and the way in which they are discursively constructed that mean that they are not considered as a very kind of um, serious research topic by um, many. Um, and part of that is because um, there's a sort of too, too cool for school attitude about conferences. Sometimes 
conferences are po pointless, boring, unnecessary. You can do perfectly well without them. People just go for a holiday. It's just a break. Uh, it's just an excuse to get drunk. Uh, there's a lot of that that goes circulates in the sort of informal discourses of academia. However, at the same time, um, they're constructed as well as being totally necessary and totally vital for disseminating research, for making international networks, for forming academic collaborations. So there's a strange sort of disconnect in the discourses around conferences that I've um, been researching um, that seems in some way to have an ambivalence about it as to whether it's actually worth fighting for conferences or if you don't fight for them, uh, are you really missing out? Um, at, or are you actually, if you don't, if you can't go to conferences, are you actually missing out on some hidden benefits that lead to career progression and promotion, etc.? Um, so I sort of fight for conferences as really quite important um, sites to be looking at, um, alongside the more institutional focus of a lot of higher education research. Um, at the same time, I recognise that there's quite a wall to get through um, in terms of taking conferences seriously. Um, the more I've been delving into conferences research, um, I've seen how many axes of inequality um, affect access to these um, quite uh, elite um, spaces, of transient, temporary, mobile spaces. Um, some of that is around border politics, um, obviously the travel ban and whether or not you choose to boycott um, conferences in the States or Israel um, uh, comes into it, uh, whether or not you can get a visa, uh, whether or not it's worth trying to get a visa. Obviously uh, issues around funding and that can often be um, related to employment status and the precariat in, in academia um, and not to mention um, physical issues of disability or, or, or illness that um, might actually pr prevent you getting into what are um, undoubtedly able-bodied um, expecting um, spaces like conferences and caring responsibilities. Um, and I've come to um, frame uh, my research in, on, in, on caring responsibilities in conferences in relation to this idea of access to and access within that comes from um, sort of education studies and question of education and international uh, development, um, access to education being, you know, just getting yourself through the door, and access within actually being once you're through the door, can you get anything out of education? And um, I think thinking about conferences in that, in that way as well is a pretty valuable thing to do because a lot of the um, schemes that exist for conferences are currently about access to conferences. We'll fund your childcare so that you can get there. We'll have childcare at the conference so that you can get to the conference and bring your child. They're not about actually, okay, maybe you've got caring responsibilities. What is your experience of the conference? Can you actually, when, when you're at the conference, can you concentrate? Can you go to the sessions you want to go to? Can you go to the networking events? What actually happens when you're there? Um, and in this research project, um, I really wanted to focus uh, on those two aspects, not just can you get to a conference in the first place. So um, these are my uh, research questions for the project, um, and I wanted to look at the specific factors of caring responsibilities. Um, so um, I, I didn't just want to see it as, okay, you have a child, this means this. I wanted to understand, okay, you have these caring responsibilities, what does that actually 
mean? What is the obstacle? If it is an obstacle, what is the challenge? What does that actually, what does that scenario look like? I wanted to look at strategies that academics employ, um, but also that they pick up on from um, institutions or conference organisers who almost provide um, strategies to carers for how they can access conferences. I thought that strategic element was quite important. How do you use what you've, what resources you've got in order to um, get to conferences and experience conferences in a way that you want to? And I thought I wanted to particularly look at that international versus domestic um, dimension um, because um, of the obsession with internationalisation and the sort of the promotion kind of criteria of needing to have an international presence and international networks and international references to support your promotion application. And these conference spaces are places where um, international networks do form. So those are my uh, research questions for this for this project. Uh, now, um, in, oh, the, okay, never mind. Um, the, um, I wanted to sort of construct academic in quite a loose way and a way that was open to self-identification. Uh, so in my call for participants, I asked for academic slash researcher slash teacher in higher education slash student. It's really anyone who feels that they're um, participating in conferences as um, an academic or a proto-academic or however they want to construct themselves. Um, and I thought it was particularly important to include research students and um, those who are working in the precariat on sh short-term uh, precarious uh, contracts, um, simply because those are people for whom conferences can be of particular benefit and yet have very little institutional support to access them. Um, and um, I also um, wanted to think about um, academics as um, in, as people with intersecting identity characteristics um, and life circumstances. Um, and interestingly, um, this, this project never constructed itself as about women, um, but several times people have said to me, it's great that you're doing a project on conferences and women. Um, and I thought that's a very interesting sort of translation of uh, you know, what has deliberately set itself up as um, open to various gender identifications. Um, I have a, a sort of theoretical wariness of identity categories um, that comes from working a lot with gender studies uh, and thinking about um, queerness and non-normative non gender identities. Um, I didn't want to um, specifically uh, just focus on biological identified women. Um, however, the way your project is read beyond the project obviously has uh, different implications. So then, um, as I mentioned uh, a minute ago, time for me is a really key um, dimension of this project uh, at a theoretical level um, and the way that time and subjectivity intertwine. And um, in a lot of the accounts of how time is working in academia and how academics are working with time, there's a sense of time as external um, to us. It's the clock on the wall. Um, the academics are somehow chasing that clock or they're trying to change that clock, they want to just stop that hand, um, they're trying to, to manage what is essentially external to them. <clears throat> um, but other theorists of time talk about how time and subjectivity are, are intertwined um, and in some ways I, I think I'm seeing that in this, in this study, um, a sense that 
you can't really do anything with time, but a sense of what you might be able to do with time becomes part of who you are and the way that you live your life. Um, a, a constant um, passivity to the, to the clock, to the conference schedule, to the time of day that it starts or ends. And then um, a, a kind of parallel sense that, yes, I can make that happen. I can change my... Uh, up undergo huge upheavals to change the way that my my day and my life and my care is working in order to to beat that clock um, and I think um, this is sort of as I move more into the nuanced um, analysis of the project it's this uh, time interwoven with subjectivity and the way that care uh, feeds into that that is the sort of angle I'm taking then uh, my understanding of care uh, matches very much with uh, Marie-Pierre's uh, report, which is partly why I was so delighted to, to see it, um, which is uh, seeing people as not as un unencumbered individuals, but nodes in a network of relationships. Seeing people as situated in a constellation of caring responsibilities that um, could be all kinds of different things and involve all kinds of different levels, emotional and practical, of care. Um, and I wanted people to self-define as, uh, as carers um, and I gave this sort of quite varied list of possibilities, children, parents, other relatives, pets, friends and kin, um, to encourage people to uh, sign up for the, for the study who maybe um, di don't fall into that group of um, uh, parent with child. <coughs> um, and I have got a wide range of caring responsibilities um, within the uh, participant uh, group for this for this project. Um, so just to give you a sense, um, as I said at the very beginning, this has been a very um, quick fire project because of the uh, the craziness of institutional funding arrangements. So um, uh, I, I applied for Warwick's uh, Research Development Fund and was awarded it in February. And um, this is sort of where I'm at at the moment. Um, I've done um, pretty two-thirds, three-quarters of the, of the interviews, so I've, um, but because of the way the funding works, um, I had to have my dissemination event now. Um, so I've been doing, you know, a lot of uh, parallel, inter you know, research, data collection, development, and, um, and analysis. Um, and um, it's to say this is why I wanted an early uh, findings event. I don't claim to have finished. Um, but I'm really interested to see how where I'm up to so far um, strikes people so that I can actually develop where I'm going to take it for the full dissemination um, later. Um, so this is a really important moment for me to kind of be saying this is where I'm up to um, so far. Um, so to give you um, a sense of uh, the research design, um, it's centred around one um, conference. And uh, the point of this is that a lot of studies of um, uh, kind of behavior and um, inequality practices in higher education focus on people's um, general kind of daily life almost. Gen their general, um, what, you know, what would you say about yourself? How would you summarize your existence almost? And uh, I felt that with, uh, with this study, I wanted to concentrate actually very closely on the micro detail of one experience and then use that um, for, uh, to, for participants to then generalise from that about their more general experiences in a comparative sort of way. 
So I asked uh, people to sign up for the study who um, were going to be attending a conference um, basically between um, and May and July. Um, and it could be a one-day event. Um, I didn't want to exclude people who can't go away for the night, etc. Um, and uh, so before the conference, um, uh, we just sort of shared the information with them and determined, um, okay, what is it that you'll be dealing with at this, this conference? Where are you going? What's the distance? That sort of thing. And then um, actually while participants were at the conference, they had a questionnaire to fill in, uh, which included a time log, um, which um, they were asked to fill in with uh, how much contact they had um, with or about their caring responsibilities while they were away, uh, conversations that they had with people at the conference about their caring responsibilities, and thoughts that popped into their head uh, relating to caring responsibilities. So I was trying to get a sense from that of how people's um, specific conference experiences were playing out. The kinds of things that went wrong, went right, what are their strategies, how, how do they work, what are the sort of micro detail basically. <clears throat> and yeah, how does it work before the conference and when they get back from the conference. Um, following on from that, um, there's a sort of one hour um, interview um, in which I ask um, lots of uh, detailed questions about that specific conference experience um, and then ask them to compare that conference to other conferences that they attend on a more general level. So. Um, the, the point of focusing on that, on that one conference, as I say, is, uh, is because I think uh, sometimes people are more able to think about their, the complexity of their, of their everyday arrangements if you ask them to talk about one short moment in time, <coughs> you know, rather than being asked for sort of more generalizations. Um, and uh, a lot of people have asked me, did it, did it actually affect the participants' experience of caring at the conference? And um, I've asked every participant that, it's one of my, my questions, and a lot of participants have said um, it didn't affect what they did, but it affected how they thought about it, and it made a lot of participants really aware of what they're doing uh, on a day-to-day -day basis in order to maintain um, this, um, you know, as Mary Pierre puts it, sort of bachelor exterior, as if they've got nothing, nothing going on. What is it that they're what is it they're going through on a daily basis? Um, so, um, and some, some, one participant said it made me realize I need to go on a date with my partner because um, all we do is text about our child's feeding. Um, someone, else <coughs> someone else said um, everyone should have to fill in uh, this time record because no one has quite as much sense of uh, what they're doing on a daily basis as, until, they, until they fill this out. And it was going to lead to a conversation with her partner about how they actually did this kind of thing. So it has it's had an effect, but it doesn't seem to have changed actually, for those of you who would care, <coughs> doesn't seem to change what they actually do at the conference. <coughs> so um, I have uh, 20 interview participants. Um, as I say, it's quite a small scale study. It's exploratory. Um, I was looking for 20 participants and actually over 65 people volunteered um, and uh, that was uh, quite a shock <coughs> and I invited everyone who signed up who couldn't uh, participate in the interview to still fill out the questionnaire and I've had a few of those left uh, back and 
that's uh, been really great extra data. Mm. Most of the participants are based in the UK, a few other countries, and there's definitely a range of nationalities and mobility trajectories within there, which all impact on the way that care works. There's <coughs> a range of disciplines, mainly social sciences and humanities, though, and really a great range of institutions and seniority, etc. Um, different ethnicities, religions, relationship types, um, but again, the majority of participants are um, women. Um, <coughs> it's the battle with, with care research, I guess. Um, and, um, and the conferences really did vary from someone going to a one-day event on their university campus to um, travel, travelling to other continents. And I will show you shortly the huge range of caring responsibilities that were part of this study. So on to the findings. The first, um, sorry, it's sort of slightly cut off at the top there, but um, the first set of findings I want to share with you are about um, accessing conferences. So that idea of can you actually get there? Mm. It seems that one of the key uh, considerations is can I get back if something happens? It's the sort of can I get back factor. And that is a really subjective scale. Um, for some people, it's a few miles. For other people, it's like, okay, it's okay if I live in London and go to Paris because uh, I can get a flight easily. Um, and it, some of that is based on the reliability of what, who else can pick up the pieces if something goes wrong. Some of it is also about what can I get away with in terms of negotiations with other supporting um, people with supporting roles. How often do I, am I trying to go to conferences? When was the last one? Um, what else is going on with us at the moment? And also, how guilty do I feel about um, leaving caring responsibilities at home? Some of it is about the availability of care. Uh, so sometimes it's about competing schedules and priorities, um, especially in dual uh, career families, but also um, uh, people with uh, grandparents who are involved, uh, who are still working, um, or who have other commitments. Um, what what do you do when it comes to that sort of diary clash? Um, who whose work is more important? Whose stuff is more important? Um, and there's also the issue um, of uh, how far in advance do I need to book with the childcare or the pet care? And if it's booked up, is there another alternative, or is that basically it? Um, and there's also quite a big consideration around um, the sort of availability of a plan B and also the re reliability of plan A. Um, so if, if everything goes well with plan A, uh, you're fine. Do you have a plan B? Um, some of the issues around not having a plan B is related to uh, sole parenting, which is um, also an issue when we think about academic mobility and people have moved country away from their other support networks. Um, then there's also um, a problem with, with plan B or the reliability of plan A if um, the partner or other support role has um, a kind of ongoing illness or an unpredictable job. Um, there was someone whose partner worked in um, politics and the uh, general election messed quite a few things up suddenly. <clears throat> um, and there are also these sort of intersecting factors. Um, so one of, uh, one of the participants um, can't travel around uh, Shabbat. Um, 
uh, because there are travel restrictions associated with uh, Judaism and the way that she practices it. So she had to make the choice between um, actually going to going to stay in a hotel by herself uh, if, before the conference because she couldn't actually travel, uh, but leaving her child and partner for another day at home um, because she had to she had to have travelled to the conference before it started in order to respect her um, religious. Um, her religious caring responsibilities, if you like. So how these things intersect and how that intersects with your plan A and plan B, um, that seems to be a kind of quite a complicated set of factors going on there. <coughs> there are, there's quite a lot of um, pulling out of conferences or not being able to go to conferences that has come up uh, in my data. And um, this, this particular participant talked about how she just gave up on going to a conference uh, because the childcare arrangements were just too complicated. Mm. And she wasn't, she wasn't, these two quotes are both from her, she wasn't talking about um, the same, this wasn't part of the same part of the interview. <clears throat> but I thought it was important to think about um, the fact that, so she, she researches a country, she's based in the UK, but she researches a country that isn't the UK. And she said the way the culture works there is that if you're asked to go to a conference there and you don't, you can't, you don't go, the, you just don't get another invitation. And if you put those two quotes together, <clears throat> um, potentially her not being able to make that one conference that she's finally been invited to in that other country could mean that that's just a kind of roadblock to her progressing in her research. So uh, when Plan B doesn't work or whatever, can have you know can have like really quite long-lasting effects. <clears throat> um, as I said, one of my kind of key research questions <coughs> was about international and domestic conferences. And again, the, the "can I get back" factor is really important, and it really is this subjective scale. Um, sorry. Uh, so. Um, Participant uh, 15, for example, was saying she had managed to go to a conference in Europe. Uh, the other conference that she was thinking about going to was in the US. And I said, so if you hadn't gone to the one in Europe, what would you have gone to? And she said, I would have gone for no conference rather than going to the US, simply because it just feels way too far. However, another participant said, I wouldn't go to Australia, uh, but I would go to the US. So uh, it just shows that sort of real subjective uh, scale with what some people consider to be too far away and what others feel is possible. Um, jet lag is also a, a massive consideration for international, uh, long distance international travel. Um, so here we have another participant pulling out of a conference that she was supposed to go to uh, in another, conf another continent uh, because of the jet lag implications of getting home and already being in a sleep-deprived um, state uh, with a young child and not wanting to add that jet lag component to it. Um, but I think it's sort of important to note that international and domestic isn't a hard and fast uh, boundary. Um, so one, one participant um, who, um, who, who's a carer of dogs um, said that when she, um, when she was going to go to a really remote uh, conference in Scotland, essentially it would have taken her as long to get back from the north of Scotland as from um, another country and um, 
actually for a previous conference her dog had died um, while she was at the conference um, so when this dog uh, became really ill she just felt like I can't go through that again and um, and decided to cancel that conference so even if it's in the UK it doesn't necessarily and you live in the UK it doesn't necessarily mean that it feels more possible than going to another country okay so moving on um, I want to show you some of the care constellations um, that as, I, as I'm calling them that emerged from this uh, project to show you um, just how many uh, players are involved and Actually, any one of these could have looked slightly more complicated because of the sort of small incidental features that came in through the interviews. I've sort of slightly simplified them. Um, and the yellow uh, represents a caring responsibility and the red represents a support for the caring responsibility and the orange is someone who's a caring responsibility and providing support. That dual role of being both carer and supporting role is kind of quite... Um, present. Um, so uh, with uh, participant four, um, she's a, she was a sole, sole parent and had a 14-year-old accompanying her. So that was her, her constellation was quite um, kind of compact, if you like. Um, <clears throat> participant 14 was also a sole parent um, and she was relying quite heavily on the wraparound care that her school, her child's school could could provide in order to attend an event um, and she didn't really have a plan B beyond the after-school club so part of her issue then was that she had to leave the conference early because it's really um, you can't sort of make the after-school club look after your child any longer they don't have the emotional commitment to your uh, caring responsibility for you to be able to say I'm sorry I just can't get back in that time um, and participant seven <coughs> Um, had uh, two dogs and a, and a dog sitter. So again, a relatively compact kind of caring responsibility constellation. Participant 15 and 5 had a slightly more um, complicated uh, set of responsibilities in that um, uh, she had a six-year-old child um, and her, her partner, who's also an academic, was away on a research visit. Uh, when at the time she needed to go to the conference. So she had to get her mother involved, but her mother's also unwell. And um, she also had to involve some of her daughter's friends in order to make up the beginning of the daycare um, where her friends took her daughter to school. Um, so there are a number of overlapping support roles and caring responsibilities there. <clears throat> and part participant five um, had an eight-month-old child um, but had also recently become a guardian of a 16 year old um, also had a dog um, and her partner at least was on parental leave so was able to uh, basically coordinate some of this and um, took them all to uh, her parents house um, for some of the days she was away so the parents were able to step in and cover some of that that care as well um, and I think this sort of really reflects some of um, uh, Marie Pierre and um, Murray's um, work in that report that um, care varies so much. It varies in terms of the type of care, the rhythm of care, uh, there's sort of remote and occasional care, care changes over time. Um, so what people consider to be care also varies.